Hey there. I know it's, uh, been a while, so I hope you're ready to get back into it. Welcome back to Comics on Consoles. Rorschach's Journal, Friday the 13th, October 1972. Raining again tonight, raining a lot lately. Like heaven is trying hard to wash away all of New York's sins. <laughs> Waste of time. Steel wool couldn't scour clean this city's soul. Welcome back to Comics on Consoles, your sometimes monthly in-depth analysis of video games based on the iconic characters of the comic book medium. I'm your host, Chris Clow, and in this issue, we're going to inch the doomsday clock ever closer to midnight by delving into the unique and sole video game adaptation based on what is arguably the single most iconic and game-changing limited series in the history of the entire comic book medium. When it was first published as a 12-issue comic book series between September of 1986 and October of 1987, Watchmen was a high enough commercial success that it actually helped publisher DC Comics overtake their direct competitors at Marvel for a short while, before it was ultimately collected and published into the form it's likely most been consumed as, a compilation book or what most people refer to either as a graphic novel or within the walls of comic specialty stores as a trade paperback. Although it ran into some initial hiccups during its month-to-month single-issue publication, the extra time taken by writer Alan Moore and artist Dave Gibbons obviously worked out for the best. Watchmen has the distinction of being the first collected comic book series to hold a place in Time Magazine's 100 Greatest Novels of All Time, and is noted by many an academic authority as, quite possibly, the single greatest work that the comic book medium itself has ever produced, bar none. That's a pretty amazing feat. While the 1980s is largely considered to be extraordinarily informative and influential on the kinds of artistic heights comics would be able to achieve if there's a strong enough creative vision present, Watchmen, in virtually every respect, was far ahead of its time by virtue of the many, many different ways it actually takes advantage of the fact that it's being told in the comics medium. For years, Many people believed that the pages of comics made for the only real, viable way to tell the story that Moore and Gibbons laid out on the original pages. Back in the 80s, decades after publishers of the Silver Age introduced the idea of things like alternate realities and fringe scientific concepts into the fabric of the various shared universes, the editors and storytellers of Watchmen went into the story knowing that their audience was an intricately sophisticated one, exuding more faith in readers to keep up with the inherent complexity of the fiction as it's layered in this particular story. This allowed Moore and Gibbons to experiment with a lot of unique methods that served to expand the world of the characters, whether it was telling a story within a story as was the case in the parallel pirate adventure Tales of the Black Freighter, or by interspersing prose elements of a prime supporting character's autobiography in order to provide valuable expository and interpersonal detail to the world in which the story was taking place. These things, for lack of a better phrase, made the entire story come alive. 
People would also be at least partially correct by labeling the original Watchmen story as somewhat dystopic, since the world established in it can certainly be taken as a dark reflection of the one in which we, as real people, inhabit. While retaining capabilities of fiction and high-concept fringe science, the world, and the way that world is rendered, give the entire proceeding a somewhat shocking, very recognizable layer of realism, which I'm saying while making air quotes, by the way. Watchmen, of course, is presented in a heightened reality, but from the grime of the buildings to the blood in the gutters, you could almost feel it when Watchmen was punching you in the face, largely through the gritty brand of street justice dished out by the enigmatic vigilante, Rorschach. This also brings to mind another major innovation that the series brought to the table. By and large, comics of that time and in the decades preceding Watchmen always took place in a relatively fantastical environment. Sure, the Gotham City, Metropolis, and Marvel New York of the 1980s were all far more real than the way those locales were presented in the 60s and 70s, but they also always seemed to be part of another place that was out of reach to us as real people. When it comes to Watchmen, though, the world presented there had an almost uncomfortable resemblance to our own, which made the presence of superheroic characters all the more interesting. Where today we're more accustomed to seeing real-world superhero stories take an incremental step in introducing characters with extra-normal abilities, with the movie Chronicle and those characters slowly advancing power levels coming to mind as a very recent example, Watchmen went in an entirely new direction by asking how the world may react to, for all intents and purposes, an omnipotent god bursting onto the scene and becoming the world's first truly super superhero. The world of Watchmen was more than familiar with masked adventurers operating on the streets for decades, a la the original Minutemen of the Golden Age, but the arrival in the story of Dr. Manhattan very visibly changed the way that world perceived heroics, while also taking things like geopolitical consequences of Manhattan's existence into account during the already complex Cold War era, where the United States and Soviet Union were engaged in sporadic proxy conflicts all over the globe. Within the context of this story, some of those Soviet-backed states would now find themselves thinking twice about opposing the U.S. when they have at their disposal an unkillable soldier who can literally think entire civilizations out of existence, and Dr. Manhattan also served, very interestingly, as a one-man nuclear deterrent. In the end, if you've never absorbed the original Watchmen comic book story, it's highly necessary reading for anyone who's ever called themselves a superhero fan. On top of all the other memorable works of merit through the 1980s from minds like Frank Miller, Grant Morrison, Marv Wolfman and George Perez, and Chris Claremont and John Byrne, among many others, Watchmen stands as one of the single most transformative comic book series in the entire history of the medium. Naturally, that made a lot of Hollywood filmmakers eager to adapt it into a motion picture of some kind, and the vast majority of these efforts would come up short due to two primary factors. The uniqueness of the work in question, and squabbles among potential filmmakers over exactly how to tackle its page-to-screen transition. Of course, when talking about a significant portion of comics-based video games, the conversation more often than not has to start with a film adaptation of some kind, it's hard to imagine a scenario in which a Watchmen-based video game would have made it to the market if it didn't have some kind of larger media effort behind it, and that's exactly what it took to get our subject game, Watchmen The End Is Nigh, into development. 
While I would love to go into more significant detail about the roller coaster of started and stopped projects that ultimately led to a successfully produced Watchmen film adaptation, that story in and of itself would likely eat up a little too much time on a show that devotes itself specifically to comics-based video games. Suffice it to say that development on a Watchmen film had been starting and stopping on a ridiculously consistent basis since the year the book was first published, 1986, and Warner Brothers Pictures didn't announce the hiring of the film's actual director until June of 2006. In that 20-year time span, the project at varying levels of production went through three producers, four directors, and five different screenwriters. Many of the rights were also tied up between both Paramount Pictures, a studio who bought into the project, and Warner Brothers Pictures, the parent company of DC Comics. Both Terry Gilliam and Darren Aronofsky were attached as directors at different points, with the former actually accusing the book of being unfilmable, before everything finally aligned and director Zack Snyder was hired to finally make the movie a reality. Snyder's then imminently releasing work on another comic book adaptation, Frank Miller's 300, is ultimately what got him the job directing Watchmen. Shot with a combination of physical sets, green screens, and various special effects, 300 did an effective job of evoking the original work, while also showcasing Snyder's undeniable flair for visual storytelling. I remember thinking after originally seeing 300 that I had never seen something as gruesome as a severed human head look as strangely beautiful as it did in that film, and overall the news of Snyder gaining the job of Watchmen was received reasonably well by fans and critics alike. Considering Snyder's current reputation for comics-based films, whether you love the guy or hate him, that in and of itself shows that 2007 was a very different time than 2017 is. With the Watchmen film now a definite future release on the docket, Warner Brothers ultimately set its sights on the goals it had for the release when it came to consumer products. Tying a significant amount of products into a film like Watchmen wasn't really on the table. While many of the characters outwardly look like they'd be friendly for a lot of product tie-ins, the studio also realized that the film's subject matter and expected R rating from the Motion Picture Association of America would likely not make something like a Happy Meal tie-in very feasible. Memories of Batman Returns' disastrous 1992 McDonald's tie-in likely helped put that idea into perspective pretty quickly. Instead, WB took the wiser approach by targeting consumer products at the film's appropriate demographics. High-end collectibles like prop replicas and statues, adults-only toy merchandise, and art books that celebrated both the original book and the upcoming film were natural exploitations for both prospective film fans and the already-initiated hardcore Watchmen comics fans. On top of that, the book itself was also a powerful marketing tool because of the purported attention to detail that Snyder had been saying he would pay to it in the finished film, so DC went back to press for entirely new editions of Watchmen that reprinted the archival quality printings of the 2006 Absolute Edition of the book into a more economically accessible hardcover edition. While Alan Moore would continue to distance himself from any film adaptations of his work as he had done with V for Vendetta a few years prior, the book's illustrator Dave Gibbons became intimately involved in both the production and promotion of the film. It turns out I also have a very small personal connection to the Watchmen film, as it was one of the very first major motion pictures I covered as an accredited writer. 
I attended the Hall H presentation and cast and crew roundtables at Comic-Con International in San Diego in 2008 on behalf of Batman on Film, and I was definitely very taken with the enthusiasm of the cast in particular with representing the characters from a celebrated comic book series. In the roundtables, I got to ask Patrick Wilson, Malin Ackerman, and Carla Gugino specifically about the moral conundrum that the end of the book presents to the reader, and they all seemed excited about the prospect of presenting that moral question to the film's audience. Jackie Earl Haley's enthusiasm for bringing the book's most popular character to life on film was also extremely infectious, and it became abundantly clear that the man had done a significant amount of homework before donning the mask and grinding up his voice on the Vancouver set. I also got to gush directly to Dave Gibbons himself, who I loved both as a legendary DC artist in the past, as well as the then-current writer of one of my favorite ongoing series at the time, Green Lantern Corps. In fact, he seemed to visibly relax around me when I made it abundantly clear to him that I was a comic book fan and retailer, which just endears me to him more. And, for the record, you likely won't meet nicer movie stars than Jackie Earl Haley or Jeffrey Dean Morgan. Both of those guys were awesome to me and the press pool in general. And though I'm kicking myself now for not being more vocal during my time with him, I have spoken at least three to five words to Zack Snyder. And hey, he nodded at me. Not much to brag about, but I'll take it. Of course, one of the questions that would arise for WB in marketing the Watchmen movie would come down to the questions surrounding a video game adaptation of some kind. While the studio was more than willing to actually take the plunge and create a gaming experience to accompany Watchmen, they also made a couple of unique choices regarding the proposed game in order to have more control over quality assurance, a tactic that had not been taken on their last console video game based on a major superhero film. Coincidentally enough, that game was the subject of our last issue of Comics on Consoles, Superman Returns the Video Game, developed by EA Tiberon and released by Electronic Arts in November of 2006. As we explored in that issue, Superman Returns had a significant amount of anticipation behind it because of a few different factors. The kind of game it was trying to be, the fact that it was one of the first major superhero games on HD-capable hardware, and the fact that many fans and gamers were looking at it to potentially save Superman from a highly perceived curse afflicting the character's games. Interestingly enough, at the beginning of February 2017, some new information about that effort came to the gaming press's attention. In a piece at Polygon titled Superman Returns What Went Wrong, former developers from EA Tiberon went into some pretty immense detail with writer Matt Paprocki about all the factors that worked in their game's favor, and the seeming mountain of externalities that were working against it. Some at Warner Brothers felt that Tiberon, the studio responsible for the highly popular Madden NFL game since 1989, simply wouldn't be well-suited to making a wide-spanning superhero game. Still, the team did make a concerted effort, as evidenced by pre-release materials and our own interview with the Superman homepage's Neil Bailey. As we now know, certain teams and resources just weren't in place, and apparent difficulties between the game developers and the movie studio, along with the studio's intent to maintain an intense level of secrecy surrounding the film, ended up hurting developers' ability to properly represent their license, and simply turned what seemed like a promising superhero game into far more of a tragedy than a triumph. And a tip of the hat to friend of the show Chris Baker for bringing that story to our attention. So, what does this have to do with Watchmen? 
Well, overall, Superman Returns seemed to cause some pretty major reverberations to the approach WB Interactive Entertainment had been taking with their DC Comics properties. It's well known by this point that WBIE actually did plan on having a video game based on 2008's follow-up to Batman Begins, Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight, to release in close proximity to that now highly regarded film. While work on that game was handled for a time by original Star Wars Battlefront developer Pandemic Studios, the plug was pulled with very little fanfare. For more detail on that project, check out Unseen 64's episode about it on YouTube. It's very informative. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to think that the debacle involving Superman Returns likely had something to do with Warner Brothers' tepid attitude towards something that, by all accounts, would have been a sure financial bet. Still, there was no Dark Knight game, and Watchmen was coming up fast on the release schedule. So how could the studio try and minimize the likelihood of a negative critical reception while still having a game come out on time with the film's theatrical release? Enter the concept of digital distribution. According to a piece in Variety, of all places, in July of 2008, five days after the North American theatrical opening of The Dark Knight, as a matter of fact, Warner Brothers confirmed that a video game based on the upcoming Watchmen film would, in fact, be released in 2009. Instead of going with a traditional release window, though, they would be going with a different kind of effort, one that would release episodically via digital download on the online storefronts that were now prevalent on Xbox, PlayStation, and PC platforms. Instead of a single release rush to market to meet the theatrical release date in March of 2009, the Watchmen game would release in two parts, one with the theatrical bow of the film, and the conclusion coming, conceivably, with the film's DVD release in the summer of that same year. Warner Brothers Interactive Entertainment Executive Senior VP of Production and Development Samantha Ryan explained to Variety that by producing shorter downloadable games as opposed to a full-price disc-based retail release, they'll have more flexibility to produce higher quality titles on tight production schedules that, for movie tie-in games, usually last just over a year. We don't want a low-quality console game that will get lost at retail, she told the entertainment trade. A downloadable game allows us to deliver the experience that fans expect, end quote. The rest of the Variety piece speculates that WB is actively taking this step to avoid the normal trappings of licensed video games, meaning the fact that they have a higher-than-normal likelihood of sucking, even if they generally come with decent sales. This actually shows some foresight on WB's part about the brand damage that bad game reviews can do something that a fair number of studios I wish would still try and take the time to learn. The Variety piece also states that if the first two planned Watchmen episodes proved successful, then WBIE would be open to producing more. What this seems to represent more than anything else is a novel approach to quality assurance. WB was showing a downright surprising grasp of the realities that tend to plague a gamer's perception of a movie tie-in license game, but that foresight is useless unless the product itself actually delivers on the promise that this new approach is attempting to achieve. Novel release scheduling aside, and as I'm sure some listening game developers are all too painfully aware, having just over a year to produce something with a lot of hope behind it seems like a pretty unenviable task. So, who was charged with taking it up? WBIE hired a studio called Deadline Games, based out of the Danish capital city of Copenhagen, 
to create the game which we would come to know as Watchmen The End Is Nigh. A smaller scale indie developer founded in 1996, Deadline had produced a total of 13 games of varying sales success before being hired by WBIE to create the Watchmen game. Deadline's grasp of different genres was also all over the place. They produced two educational geography games in a series logically called Globetrotter in the early 2000s, an open-world third-person shooter on consoles and PC called Total Overdose in 2005, which itself spawned a related handheld semi-sequel on the Sony PSP called Chili Con Carnage in 2007. While pre-release coverage of the game kept its specifics pretty close to the chest, early details started to reveal the game as an entry in the brawler genre. For those who may not be 100% sure of what that is, it's pretty self-explanatory. Also known as a beat-em-up, you go around a game map and, well, beat up on enemies in order to move from point A to point B. The gold standard for the genre is undoubtedly 1987's Double Dragon, with other 8-bit gems like Final Fight and Streets of Rage catching on further with gamers' collective senses of nostalgia. Comics-based games in the 16- and 32-bit eras were also pretty natural for the brawler genre, with titles like Batman Returns, The Death and Return of Superman, and Spider-Man and Venom Maximum Carnage on the SNES, among many others, helping to emphasize the visceral satisfaction of beating your enemies into submission and advancing towards your objective. They were generally light on story, and any other kind of character interaction for that matter, but definitely nailed the elements of power and overall fun. Fan reaction to the idea of Watchmen entering this genre, as I understand it, was a little mixed, though. After all, the game in question here was based on Watchmen, perhaps one of the most definitively cerebral comic book stories ever committed to the page. So we're going to go from Dr. Manhattan's burgeoning nihilism extending out of his own omnipotence to beat up all the bad guys to move forward? It would be very fair to perceive this as a curious choice, but it also came with at least a partial benefit. At the very least, a less complicated game means that it's not quite as easy to screw up as something that may be more ambitious. Deadline and their licensing partner, DC Comics, also came up with a way to make the game an interesting part of the cinematic Watchmen canon. After all, the original story establishes pretty definitively that the world has a long-standing history with costumed heroes dating back to the days of World War II, and since both the Watchmen comic story and the film take place largely in the 1980s, there's quite a bit of room in the continuity to tell other stories featuring the principal characters, and in their respective primes, no less. In order to actually create a story with the characters that felt authentic, the game developers and Warner Brothers seemed to realize that the game's story would require an attention to detail for the material that other, similar outings simply wouldn't demand as much as the Watchmen license. In order to craft a story that's both worthy of and appropriate for the characters, Deadline and WB Games enlisted probably the next best person for the job after original writer Alan Moore and artist Dave Gibbons, the series' original editor and downright comic book living legend, Len Wein. Across his now 49-year career in comics, Wein has touched virtually every major superhero character at least once. His writing at DC has ranged from definitive runs on action comics, Swamp Thing, Batman, Blue Beetle, Mr. Miracle, and Weird War Tales. 
At Marvel, he's spearheaded runs on The Amazing Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, Thor, Strange Tales, and, uh, and, oh yeah, he was pivotal in the creation of Wolverine. While with DC Editorial, he was also the man who recruited Alan Moore to the organization, with the British scribe not actually believing that Len Wein himself had called him on the phone. So, like I said, if you can't get Moore or Gibbons to write your game, then having such a revered and dedicated writer who also happened to have edited the original series was likely a good choice. The era in which The End is Nigh takes place is almost precisely 13 years before the events of the original story. Ween was charged with writing the original draft for the first episode's script, a tale that teamed up Rorschach and Night Owl to place them on a collision course with the primary antagonist, Underboss, an enemy that came up in Rorschach's interrogation of Moloch in the book while he's investigating the death of the comedian. After Ween turned in his draft, though, the film's director, Zack Snyder, saw an opportunity to weave in more of the historical and character details from the book to further flesh out the authenticity of the story the game would tell, while also trying to bring it more in line with the subversive tone of the original work. To that end, Snyder recruited friend and collaborator Peter Aperlo, an author who was also working on an art book and a companion book for the film, to take a pass at Ween's completed Episode 1 script. More on Mr. Aperlo will come in this issue's discussion portion, but suffice it to say that his input, along with the direct input of Zack Snyder himself, would accentuate and further authenticate the story of The End is Nigh within the canon of the primary Watchmen story as it would be related in the movie. Which, all things considered, doesn't feature all that many differences from the book when you get right down to it. Not long after the completion of the script for what would become episode one of the game, Aperlo was contacted to create the story for a second episode, and did so largely on his own. The only other major creative collaborator on the second episode's story was, once again, Zack Snyder, but the lion's share of the conceptualization and the actual final script were both products of Aperlo's work. By the time Aperlo was putting finishing touches on the creative end of the game, many of the assets and functional elements were already well on their way to completion by Deadline Games. The attention to detail in the character models and environmental design end up being one of the absolute best components of the game, and it looks very much as if it was pushing the boundaries of the visual style of games for the time. When all was finally said and done, it was announced in mid-February of 2009 that the first episode of Watchmen The End Is Nigh would be released on March 4th on Xbox Live and the following day on the PlayStation Network. So, what kind of a game is it? Honestly, while the game ended up taking kind of a beating in review outlets upon its release, The End Is Nigh is not nearly as bad an experience as some people might claim. In truth, it looks better than it has any right to, and brings the grimy gutters of the original story's vision of New York to life pretty brilliantly. The visual authenticity is nearly overwriting, all the way down to the morphing ink blot on the face of Rorschach. The visual assets were definitely given a great deal of TLC, which makes the experience as a whole look very, very polished. The aspect that largely got hammered by review outlets is, unsurprisingly, the gameplay. It's pretty easy to see why. Though it looks very good, the actual gameplay experience is very shallow. It's a beat-em-up, through and through, and has virtually no emphasis on finesse or specificity. The game quite literally starts at point A and charges you with beating the hell out of everything that gets between you and point B. 
I can certainly criticize the choice of genre for this game because it definitely feels like a more simplistic kind of game than the original story would call for. It's repetitive as all hell, but it also doesn't really try to be more than it is, if that makes sense. It doesn't really feel like The End Is Nigh is dishonest about itself, which is its existence as a repetitive beat-em-up that has a really nice layer of gloss on top of it. One thing that you can say for certain is that, though it's too simple for its own good, the combat system in The End Is Nigh is also a lot of fun. Calling back to the genre's earlier comics-based entries in the likes of Batman Returns and Maximum Carnage, engaging a group of enemies and dispatching them with sheer R-rated brutality is immensely satisfying. While the combo system may look a little unwieldy at times because of its sizable list of button combinations to pull off different flashy moves, it's actually pretty easy to get a handle on. The only real critique I have of the combat system overall is that it's a little too loose. There can be a slight delay of a half second or so in an input, which is just enough to interfere with your cadence after you've established it. There are also character-specific combat traits specific to the way each character functions when engaging enemies. Staying true to his origins as a tech-based hero, Night Owl has the ability to electrically polarize his suit, giving a bit of an electric shock and some added damage when the perk is activated. Also relatively true to Rorschach, his perk is a rage mode that increases speed and damage, all next to a guttural scream as he mercilessly beats the foes in front of him. Sure, engaging these abilities tends to lose their respective lusters after activating them for the 47th time, but it's nice that the visceral satisfaction is increased in some smart places by the combat system itself. Beyond that, in regards to gameplay, there's... not much else. Boss battles are basically just souped-up combat encounters, requiring more patience and selective attacks by the time you get to the likes of Underboss at the end of the first episode. The game doesn't require you to play any differently on a fundamental level in each successive larger encounter, again adding to the overriding feeling of repetition. The real value that a Watchmen fan will get for playing the game, though, lies in the story. Len Wein, Peter Raperlo, and Zack Snyder make for a good collaboration, mixing in events that were hinted at in or extrapolated from the book, and the experience overall gives greater context to the partnership between Rorschach and Night Owl, playing out through motion comics cutscenes that beautifully evoke the original artwork by Dave Gibbons, the story feels both complex and well thought out, and could have made a basis for a great before Watchmen team-up series between two of the original story's principal characters. Adding to the authenticity is the fact that Patrick Wilson and Jackie Earl Haley reprise their roles from the film as Night Owl and Rorschach, respectively. Especially in the case of the latter, the world of the film really comes alive, as you hear the scraping vocal cords of Rorschach give more of his delightfully paranoid and ultra-conservative commentary about how the world is a devolving cesspool that needs people like him to keep it sane all with his trademark lack of any self-reflection whatsoever. Night Owl is, of course, the more straight-laced of the two, and in its own way, the dialogue from the game and the delivery of the two actors help to emphasize just how much of an odd couple this really is. As alluded to earlier, reviews tended to be unkind to the final product. In a more moderate perspective, GameSpot's Chris Waters said, quote, Those inclined to tire of repetitive gameplay will find the price of entry too high, but there is some value here. 
Though it may be shallow, overpriced, and likely to disappoint anyone hoping for a more weighty fare, Watchmen The End Is Nigh is ultimately a simple, well-crafted game that will please those looking to dish out some good old-fashioned beatdowns. He scored it 6.5 out of 10. X-Play on the old G4 TV also reviewed the game, seeming more incensed with the fact that it exists than they were struck by any of the game's actual elements. Be that as it may, they seemed reasonably happy with the combat system, awarding it 3 stars out of 5. Game trailers, however, seemed a bit... harsher. In their review, they concluded by saying, Though largely lacking in ingenuity, Watchmen The End Is Nigh proves that if licensed games can't be good, they can at least look good. The gameplay has a life expectancy of about 45 minutes, and at a pricey $20 for just a few hours of play, it probably should have been released for 5 bucks and used as a promotional tool for the flick. End quote. They awarded it 4.9 out of 10. Barely qualifying as more generous, IGN's Hillary Goldstein seemed somewhat offended by the game's existence, as well as wholly unimpressed with what was actually there. In his review, he said, quote, Though the very idea of a Watchmen brawler may sicken some, this could have been a good game. Unfortunately, the design lacked any imagination whatsoever. Add Watchmen The End Is Nigh to the long list of movie-licensed games that aren't any good. End quote. He gave it a 5.5 out of 10. However, all in all, eight years removed from its release, we conclude that Watchmen The End Is Nigh is absolutely worth playing, especially if you're a fan of the original book. It's kind of a strange experience to quantify, because while the gameplay itself is somewhat mind-numbing because of its high degree of repetition, the story is engaging because of its nicely layered ability to evoke the original book and extrapolate on events that were just hinted at in the primary story. Still, generally speaking, Comics on Consoles as a whole thinks that reviews are largely only part of the story when it comes to comics-based video games, because of the widespread stigma around them that very much tends to damage perceptions well before most games in the genre are even released. Yes, it's simple and relatively basic when you're mashing buttons on your controller, but it also comes with a pretty truthful Before Watchmen-esque story, some damn good-looking motion comics, characters that feel authentic, and some pretty solid vocal performances from two of the film's principal actors. The fact that you have a satisfying combat system on top of that seems like icing on the cake, especially if you're a fan that's read the original story a thousand times, the Before Watchmen books cover to cover, and have absorbed all the other material that is related to the movie. Do you want another decent, if low-level Watchmen story? Well, guess what? You can find it in The End Is Nigh. Still, there is another aspect of the game worth looking at, and that's the specifics of the story itself. In that spirit, this issue's discussion portion features one of the game's principal writers, an author who's spent time on multiple sets of films directed by a friend of his, Zack Snyder, and who has a valuable perspective about Watchmen, its place in modern mythology, and maybe a few facts about the polarizing figure that is Zack Snyder that some fans simply may not have thought of. So... Please listen to the discussion with one of this game's key creative minds, author Peter Aperlo. Enjoy. Typical. City couldn't get the power back on five minutes faster? No guards in sight. Not paid enough to rush headfirst into Slaughterhouse. Not like us, right? Well, whoever sabotaged those generators sure knew what they were Keep doing. Keep your hands where I can see them, dammit! 
You were warned to keep out of this. I ought to arrest you both. You two aren't going anywhere until we sort out how much damage your meddling caused. The uh, Dr. Manhattan? And Silk Spectre, I see. Can we be of any assistance? Nah, we were just leaving. Isn't that right, Warden? Uh, yes, absolutely. No problem. Very well. A plane carrying a Uruguayan rugby team will crash in the Andes in precisely 4 minutes 37 seconds, unless I intervene. Thank you for your concern, Knight. Blue Freak makes my skin crawl. He might have been able to tell us where to find Underboss. You look like you could use a drink, Daniel. Here the rum runner is always open. And now we move on to the discussion portion, and my very special guest today is Mr. Peter Aperlo, who uh, was deeply involved in the creation of the story for Watchmen, The End is Nigh. Mr. Aperlo, how you doing? I'm good, how you doing? I'm doing, doing just fine. So, one of the things that I find Im immensely interesting is that you kind of have to do a little bit of digging to know that you were involved in the game, because as a comic book fan... They really tried, Warner Brothers tried to get people like my attention by saying, Len Wein is involved with the writing aspect of the game. And we all know who Len Wein is, especially in the comic book community. So what was your background before you decided to, uh, to jump into this kind of specialized subgenre of comic book storytelling? And what brought you to Watchmen specifically? Oh, geez, long story. Um, <laughs> Don't I really have a background in comic book writing? I'm a screenwriter, mm -hmm. and my um, connection with it goes back to um, uh, just knowing Zack Snyder. Okay. Um, my my wife was a uh, assistant editor on Dawn of the Dead, and then several mo movies of his after that, and so we actually became friends with him and his assistant and their wives, and. I ended up working for him writing um, uh, director's um, treatments for for commercials when he was still doing commercials. And then he offered me a chance to write a, um, a screenplay because uh, he, you know, he knew of my work that I'd done before, at least, you know, I was trying to get off the ground. Mm -hmm. And um, so he basically pitched a few stories to me and I picked one and um, wrote a screenplay for him which, you know, is probably buried in the annals of time now that, you know, he's been <laughs> the DC universe for so long and probably will be for another couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, but we'll see. And I said my wife continued working on his movies up through Sucker Punch. Okay. So when Watchmen came along, they said, well, um, we like the stuff that was done on um, 300. Actually, I actually worked on the 300 game. There was some narration that went with it. Right, for the for the PSP. Right. PSP when that was the, the new and upcoming platform for game. <laughs> and um so yeah, so I did some work on that and then I was working on the um art of the film for Watchmen and the um film companion. Mm -hmm. So um so when they're doing the game basically what it came down is they had a script and they had already started working on the game, mm -hmm. um, they had a lot of the environments done and a lot of the the uh, assets as far as characters and, and, you know, the thugs you fight and things like that. Mm -hmm. And um, they had the script. I, you know, I guess it was by Len. I don't know if anybody else worked on it or not. And it's a good script. And a lot of the 
the final script is there's a lot of the same thing is in there. Same stuff's in there. Mm-hmm. But um, Zach, it was you know good script basically. If it was like Batman and Robin going on an adventure, mm-hmm. sure, it was fine. Or you know anybody else from the Justice League. But Zach wanted something a little more subversive in the vein of you know Watchmen mm-hmm. and just you know picking all those little little tidbits of information you get. You know, when you read Watchmen over and over again, you find little things that are mentioned here and there. And the thing that always interested him was the little throwaway line from the comedian about um, Woodward and Bernstein during the riots. Right, yeah. And um, so he said, well, how can we, you know, work that in there? And so, you know, working with him, we decided let's do this, you know, make it about him taking out Woodward and Bernstein and pinning the blame on the underboss instead and having the... You know, basically sending the Night Owl and Rorschach on a little merry chase through New York, trying to figure out what's going on, and that's kind of how that came about. I think we, I think we added the level where they fight the um, the Cuban mercenaries in the um, in the in the sewers. Mm-hmm. We had that, and you know, put in the part about Mark Felt, the um, right deep throat FBI director mm-hmm. who who was deep throat, yeah. Which I think it was just revealed like not too long before. Um, yeah, it, yeah, that news that news definitely came out really, really close to when the uh, when the final film came out. That's for sure. Yeah, so we thought, well, let's make use of that. You know, we have an actual guy. Let's stick him in the game. <laughs> so yeah, so that's pretty much the background of how that came about. That's just that, that, yeah. that, that's really interesting because um, well, my my college degree is in political science, so. Um, you know, history, especially pertaining to something as uh, as with as checkered a past as the Nixon administration, does kind of get my uh, get my my ears perked up a bit. But I mean, that's th- that is kind of fascinating. So you and Zack Snyder then basically decided to come up with the primary uh, the the primary event that sets the game in motion based on what was, at least at the time, a throwaway line both in the book and in the movie. That's, that's interesting. I mean, it's, it's a novel way of, of creating sort of a prequel story. But you yourself came from... I mean, you had done writing in the past. Obviously, you said the, the companion books. But you also mm-hmm. have, uh, have a history in mythology. Is that right? Somewhat. I, my background, I was kind of strange, but I was a, a naval officer. Mm-hmm. And I have a, a master's in archaeology from UCLA. So, and I worked with, and he's probably the foremost Icelandic saga specialist in North America, a guy named um, Jesse Bayok. And so, yeah, I've spent a lot of time hanging around with Viking stuff and Norse mythology. And um, I put out a, a book, but this is, this is more recent, but, uh, on Viking culture and Norse, myth- Norse mythology. Mm-hmm. Through Ulysses Press a couple of years back. Okay, well, the the reason that I wanted to ask about that because when I was doing a little bit of looking into your background, that kind of jumped out at me immediately because a lot of what you'll find from a lot of uh, I guess sort of comic book evangelists and advocates is that they will say uh, rather plainly, and I think that there is a decent argument to be made that comics represent a form of modern mythology, and coming from a background of uh, academically legitimate mythology. How does something like that strike you? I mean, absolutely. I mean, there, you know, the different 
characters and heroes that are their archetypes that you know go back you know from the to the dawn of time mm-hmm. you know and um i mean they're a little more i guess starkly written than you know just somebody in some um you know costume drama sure. about something so you know rorschach is very obviously a very strong character the comedian mm-hmm. you know it's like the trickster figure from from mythology sure yeah. so uh you know and, and night owl's kind of the white knight yeah. so yeah no i definitely see that because the one thing about mythology is it's it was a great quote. I can't remember. It was some mythology class I took in grad school a long time ago. But it was, it's the why and how of the here and now. So it's always reinventing itself, even though you have these iconic um, archetypes from days past. But it's basically to explain how did the world get to be the way it is now. And I think comic books, in a lot of ways, help us deal with that and help to explain things. So Sure. sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can certainly attest to that just in my own uh level of fandom and the the kinds of ideas that uh that comic book storytelling sort of ignited in me as a young person that I've kind of taken forward but um you're so it sounds like your familiarity with comics specifically was relatively limited working on the 300 game uh you had to be at least a little bit familiar with the 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 source material or was was that pretty much just based on the movie or did you actually give give a look at uh at the book a little bit oh i looked at the book and and the same thing with watchmen i and watchmen i was like it was like my bathroom book for months and months it's like Mm. anytime the bathroom take watchmen with you and every time i would find something different yeah now so some kind of new thing popped up. Oh, I never even noticed that before. You know, yeah. you know how deaf that thing is. Oh yes, but, um, yes. Yeah, I guess. I mean, one thing is is just trying to get into the uh, to the, w- the way the dialogue is written. You know, try to get the voice as you know as well as I can. You know, I'm fucking mm-hmm. Alan Moore, and um, <laughs> you know, uh, just trying to get that voice. That was one of the main things is to look at those things and, and study them and, and figure out how people talk and mm-hmm. things like. So it sounds, you know semi-realistic, even though you're playing a video game, sure. you, know, you want it to feel like it's in the same universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the cadences, I'd imagine, would be uh, would be almost completely derived from... Well, it's and it's not like you can watch the movie as a reference, necessarily, to see how the movie's going to end up changing aspects of the source. But, um, you know, the... It, you, you do bring up... I mean, it's, it's good that you had Watchmen there uh, as long as you did, because... Obviously, I mean, that's one of the most uh, revered and certainly layered comic book stories that had likely ever been published. Did you, uh, did, did someone brief you or were you able to, to understand pretty quickly what kind of a, of a story and what kind of a world you were getting into? Yeah, I mean, as, as soon as I heard that Zach was going to be doing the movie, I had not read Watchmen. I've heard about it for, you know, years and years, but um, I went out and got it and you know, just started reading it and studying it and everything. So mm-hmm. I was kind of up to speed by the time I wasn't, you know, we're not even thinking that I was going to be doing anything on it or anything. Just like, well, this sounds interesting. I should read this. This is, you know, sure. basically classic of, of literature at the at the moment anyway. So, um, so yeah, so I was, I was reading it even before I got the job. So, mm-hmm. And were you working on the game and, uh, and the book simultaneously or, or did one follow the other? It is difficult to say which I was doing first. They, they, as I recall, there was not a lot of overlap. I think we did the books first. 
you think there would be more lead time for the game, but I seems like we were um, we did the books first. Mm-hmm. And did you have to actually be on the set in order to do work on those books? No, I we were up there. My my wife was working on the movie, and we were up in Vancouver, mm-hmm. um, so we got to go to the set sure. every once in a while. Most of my interviews with people sometimes it was with people um, later in post and stuff, so I could meet with them. Or um, I also got a lot of um, things from the the EPK, the Electronic Press Kit. Um, they do interviews there, you know, for uh, to be used by media and stuff like that. And I've got those transcripts, and I was able to use those too. But if I had other questions, I could always call people on the phone. So going to the um, I mean, it's cool to go to the set, obviously, and um, it was amazing that the, the New York Street that they built down there right outside Vancouver was really great. And at the um, end of production, when they weren't going to use it anymore, they had a big um, paintball fight in the in the streets. So. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So. Oh, man. Well, so when you actually started to absorb Watchmen, I'm, and, you know, it's... It's helpful sometimes to listen to the reverence that so many people have for it, but I would imagine that if you're actually doing work that involves Watchmen, maybe a little bit of a separation from, I guess, the the at-large fandom attitude could be beneficial. But uh, just as someone who has a uh, a background in studying mythology, mm-hmm. did reading Watchmen... Uh, I guess, arouse any ideas uh, related to mythology over the course of your first time actually exploring the book? I guess it was, what, now 10 years ago, probably? Uh, let's see. Uh, with regard to mythology in it, I mean, there was always, like, respect for the for the work. Mm-hmm. So you didn't want to do anything, you know, too hokey, right? I mean, you had to, you had to work with what you had. I mean, we, I don't, we didn't create too much out of whole cloth. I'd say it's stuff that was there kind of, and almost like, you know, using it as a sacred text or something like that. Sure. Yeah. Was, um, yeah. Using things that were mentioned, things that were there and just saying, well, how would that actually play out? You know, if, um, you know, so if they are subjected to that, um, to these problems and things like that. Right. So yeah, trying to, you know, trying, trying to remain, as true to as we can. Obviously, you can't get as detailed, you know, in the frames and, and things like that, like Alan Moore did, and, mm-hmm. uh, Dave Gibbons. But yeah, just trying to trying to trying to keep it as as close as we could. Yeah. Now I um I've only looked at like one of the before Watchmen comics. Right. I don't know, you know, what they've done if they've even gone into the same things or not in those comics. So. Because people talk like, is this canon? Is this canon? I don't know. <laughs> um, so I have no idea what um, what was done in those comics. So um, and so if it agrees with what we did in the game or not. But uh, there's a little bit of contradiction in the comedian series because uh, obviously, you know, as as someone who's interested in in comics based games, that was something that I kind of paid attention to. I was a comic book retailer at the time uh- that the Before Watchmen series was coming out. So uh, I paid relatively close attention to sort of the time in which those series played. And the comedian book, interestingly enough, because I think the game even makes, and the movie certainly makes reference to comedian potentially being involved in the JFK assassination. 
Uh-huh. And, uh, and in the Comedian series that Brian Azzarello wrote with J.G. Jones on the art, Comedian and JFK are actually best friends, which I thought was huh. sort of an interesting approach. But, it, I mean, before Watchmen, you had a lot of people that were saying, this shouldn't exist, you know. Yeah. And, and I would imagine that there are some people who's, who may have had a relatively similar attitude by the time the movie came out, because I don't know how familiar you are with the... God, the strife that actually oh, finally sure. let yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, you had you had big time directors like uh, like Darren Aronofsky and Terry Gilliam. Terry Gilliam, yeah, yeah. Who who even said this isn't filmable. This can only work in in the comics medium. And Alan Moore himself is a huge advocate of the comics medium telling stories that only comics can tell. He famously said that film drags you through the story at thirty frames per second. So the fact that Snyder was able to make the movie in the first place, and there's a lot of fans now especially who like to rag on on Zack Snyder for some of the DC stuff that he's done since Watchmen, but, I mean, as a fan, I've always admired his ability to actually make the movie in the first place and make it in a way that was truthful to the book outside of a couple of scenarios that have never bothered me, like the ending. A bunch of fans made a, a fuss about the way that the ending was changed, but... It never personally bothered me. So it sounds like he was actually uh, an, an influential factor in the work that set the stage for the game's story. And you mm-hmm. said that you had already received a script that Len Wein had written. And it actually kind of makes sense to me uh, how you say that it would have made sense for like a, a Batman and Robin type of adventure. Uh because Len Wein is, he, I mean, he his heyday was in the 70s and 80s when comic book writing uh, was one way, and it's kind of a different way now, and Alan Moore kind of pushed the envelope for it. So yeah. what were some of the issues that you faced in, I guess, is modernizing the dialogue and sort of streamlining things a fair assessment, or is it something else that uh, that you would say most of your energy went into? Most of it was... I mean, the dialogue was fine. It was mostly um, coming up with this, with the new story about, you know, and how to how to insert them into it. Basically, but I guess the the difficulty was, you know, using what we had. Like the set was the stage already set for um, Jimmy the Gimmick up in at the amusement park, mm-hmm. and it'd be the showdown with the underboss at the construction site and everything like that. And so it was weaving a new story um, having to do with Watergate and and uh, Woodward and Bernstein into that. Mm-hmm. So, so some of the dialogue was changed, obviously. But that that was the main thing was that, and getting um, like historical details right, and and so that was really fun. Was just looking back and make sure. So it's like, well, this is cool. What if it had happened on Friday the thirteenth of October? It's right by the uh, um, election. Yeah. And um, and it was it was funny because it was, it was also the same time as that um, the Uruguayan rugby team crashed in the Andes. It was like almost the same day, and so oh, wow. able to, being able to put that into Doctor Manhattan's um, dialogue and thing was was fun. There is a um, an Easter egg in the first scene. I'll let you know, but I won't. I'm not going to give it away. But it was put in there by Zach. Okay, it has nothing to do with Watchmen and has nothing to do with any of the movies that he's made since. But it has to do with a movie that he does want to make, and that's oh. all. So if you go through the first scene, look through there, and you're like, what's going on? But there is something in there. In the dialogue. 
Interesting. Well, they're probably going to have to find out exactly what that is until after he ends up making that movie. Yeah, I mean, some of it was just like the, tying it more into that idea and, and, and working it in with the Watergate story. That was that was my main... Uh, well, it, it's interesting that you say that, too, because uh, factual accuracy, of course, is, is going to be important for recognizability, but you're also dealing with an alternate history. So. Yeah. I would imagine that some things sort of had to be tweaked. Did, did did you find that stifling or freeing or just kind of fun? That was fun. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because, you know, just little things about, you know, you know, where was Nixon in the polls at that point and things like that. And, you know, but it was great to be able to use, like I said, real people like Mark Felt and mm-hmm. um, Bernstein and, ha- and having the idea that their investigation had been, had been quashed sure. and they had fired from the, New York, or uh, from the Washington Post, and um, yeah, Rorschach so, saying liberal drivel. I'm glad they were fired. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that kind of stuff is fun. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, just I, so playing history a little bit as well as trying to put actual facts in there, maybe twisting them a little bit. So that's fun. No, I, I can I can certainly imagine. I mean, I I guess it's kind of surprising for me to hear that uh, that Snyder was involved at, a little more directly than I've always been led to believe he was. I mean. I understand that as a director of a property like that, you know, where there's going to be a bunch of different consumer products made, the video game is kind of unique in the sense that most of the the other consumer products that are being made surrounding the movie don't actually have to deal too directly with creating new story material. Mm-hmm. So it seems like there's sort of a greater uh, level of responsibility on the people who are developing the game and certainly the people who are writing the game to uh, create something that actually fits in. So structurally, it sounds like you introduced a couple of other levels into the experience. So all told, when it came down to the moment that you received the script that that uh, Mr. Ween had worked on, up through actually turning it in, how long did you fully spend on the game project itself? Well, for episode one, because there was episode two. Right. Uh, um, episode one, I don't know, it was probably about a, a month or so, mm-hmm. I'd say, because there was a little bit back and forth of, you know, let's change this. Oh, I'd like to do this. It's like, yeah, we know we can't. We can't change that asset. <laughs> okay, well, let's figure this out. You know, that sort of thing. But um, now, just, about a month, I'm, say. When you say back and forth, is that between you and the filmmakers, or is that between you and DC Comics? It was between... A little bit with with Zach, and then he was you know fine with stuff, and then it was with the um, the producer of the game. Okay, name escapes me at the moment, but the um, but yeah, at, through DC Interactive or Warner Brothers Interactive. Okay, yeah. So yeah, I guess um, DC probably wouldn't necessarily need to be involved at that point. I mean, it's different when it's a character that they publish on a regular basis, but when it comes to the Watchmen stuff at that time, it didn't seem like they had a huge interest in uh, in pushing forward new material. At least that, uh, that's certainly not the case today. But uh, I, I guess that that does that does tend to make sense. Now, um, so you said a month for episode one, and then did you have a little bit of a break before you had to assume work on episode two, or was it pretty straight away? It was a break because um, I don't think there was plans to do an episode two at the time. Okay. And it was just, it was a couple months later, they said, oh, we're going to do an episode two. Like, okay, cool. Mm -hmm. And that was a little more open-ended. I mean, there was a limit on, 
you know, how many more things you could, you know, introduce as far as characters and, and places and stuff like that. But it was kind of like, well, what do you want to do? And so um, I thought, you know, it's like, well, it was a bit of a sausage fest in the first one. We have um, <laughs> Silk Spectre there for like two seconds and, uh, and then she leaves. So let's see if we can, you know, have some more of the, you know, more fun with some of the female characters that have been, uh, at least one at least, that have been at least mentioned. And it always, you know, interested me that there's, there's you know, there's a picture of um, Twilight Lady on his desk. Like, who is this woman from his past? And, you know, he doesn't really want to talk about her when Lori asks about it. And um, so, and he said, why do you keep that around all these years? It's like, so I wanted to look into that. And um, also, how about, like, how did they, Night Owl and Warshack, break up? So that was the idea of how, let's explore that and see how it goes. Yeah, that's a pretty big event in the book that they don't really give a whole lot of service to. Right. Yeah. Right. Hmm. Interesting. And, and I wanted to, say, you know, is this possible that we could have two different endings, you know, depending on, you know, which character you're playing and, you know, how it turns out. Mm-hmm. And so and then I was glad that we were able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like with episode two, then you were pretty much in charge of the of the writing aspect from beginning to end. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. Mostly. But, yeah, Zach had some input, but it was, yeah, I guess it was mostly my ideas. Let's let's do this. Let's explore her and. um yeah, do you like this? It's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever seen, um, there's a movie, I think, 8mm? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, so there's some influence from that, although I've never actually seen the movie, but I have a basic idea of the plot. So mm-hmm. I said, well, let's see if we can do that, and it just give us an uh, you know excuse to go to different uh, environments and things like that. And Zach was on board. He's like, and I say, do you think he loved her? And he said, oh, yeah, he loved her, you know, the Twilight later. He, there, was, there was something there, definitely there between Night Owl and Twilight Lady. So we really wanted to explore that and see what was going on between those two, or between those three, sort of a crazy triangle at yeah. the end. But, yeah. So I, I, it doesn't really surprise me necessarily that Snyder was able to definitively answer questions from his perspective about how, how he absorbed the book. I mean, I, uh, I've, I've absorbed a fair amount of, um, of stuff relating to the production of the Watchmen movie, and it sounds like he had a uh, pretty intimate understanding of the material in the book specifically. Mm-hmm. So when you guys were actually sort of shooting ideas back and forth about, uh, well, I guess, both episodes of the game, how far before release of the movie did you finish work on episode one and then on episode two? Uh, the, when was the, oh, the release date? Is probably in March, right? Yeah, it was March, I think, 6th of 2009. So we... Finished up writing everything for the episodes in the summer before. Okay. Yeah, like June, July, something like that, into August. So a significant yeah. amount of the time then went into the development of the game specifically then. Yeah. That certainly makes sense. It's a little surprising to hear that you were done that far ahead, especially if they weren't completely sure that they were going to be doing an episode two. How did, uh, how did the idea of a second episode actually come to you? I think they, I don't know, maybe they had some kind of tracking and they thought that it was the first one was going to be do, was going to do okay. Mm-hmm. They actually they actually released them. Did they release them online first? I want to say that. Uh, the, yeah, yeah. The first episode was actually released a couple of days before the movie hit theaters in North America, and then the second episode was in at, I think the end of uh, July. 
which I think was actually, I think they re- ended up releasing it, the movie, I mean, on home media in the summer instead of waiting until the fall. Because uh, that's normally, it's usually about five months between uh, between the theatrical release and the home media release. But Watchmen moved a little bit faster than that. Because mm-hmm. I remember being kind of excited to, to watch it again at home in the middle of the summer as opposed to... Uh, as opposed to having to wait until like October or sometime that was typical, but releasing in March too was also a few months ahead of when we normally get comic book movies. So that was that was a treat in and of itself. I went, I remember going to the to a midnight opening of Watchmen and seeing a lot of people who were really tired at the end because they didn't realize how long it was going into it. Yeah. Perfectly satisfied me since I'd been a, a fan of the book and I, I was happy that in the theatrical cut he was able to adapt as much of it as he did. But I, I guess you're always going to have some of that. Now, when it comes to the movie itself, because I would imagine you saw the movie a, a ways after having finished work on the uh, on on the game. Uh-huh. Did, did that change any of your perspectives? What was your perspective overall on the movie as someone who who had to become familiar with these characters and you finally get to see them adapted into a major motion picture? Well, I guess I'd seen little scenes here and there. Sure. Yeah. If you were on the set. Like that. Yeah. Then. So throughout the whole thing, I mean, just how faithful he was to the, to the look of the whole thing and, and to the characters. Mm-hmm. I, anyway. So yeah, no, nothing really changed for me. I mean, I mean, I have to say, when I saw the final thing, but I was blown away. Most is well, one of the most is the um, opening sequence with the the title sequence mm-hmm. is just. I think it's up there with one of the the greats of all time. Sure. <laughs> I, it might be confusing if you don't know the story, but if you you know if you're a fan of the the graphic novel, I mean, I don't know how you can watch that and not just be just moved just by watching how the change of. Um, of history and everything like that and showing these, these characters that we've, you know, we've loved for, for years in the book, you know, come to life. Uh, yeah. Basically I, I, reliving I those eras all over again, but with yeah. a, a new attention to detail. Uh huh. No, I, I mean, I, I loved it. So mm-hmm. what can I say? <laughs> Have you seen the extended versions? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My, my, um, wife actually worked on the, um, extended versions as well, doing the, uh, give a shout out for her. Um, doing the, um, the little intros and outros with the Bernies at the, uh, at the, at the newsstand. Okay. Yeah. He knows into the, into it mm-hmm. with the Black Freighter stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the famous story within a story. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, even now reading, reading Watchmen, that's, it, it still strikes me as such, such an achievement for its medium just because it was able to to interweave so many other narratives going on, and you're learning details about the characters as you learn more specific details about some of the events. And I mean, the the Hollis Mason autobiography is one of my favorite parts of the of the book as a whole. And then Tales from the Black Freighter is just kind of a weirdly transcendent thematic kind of experience as you read the book. Uh, you you definitely got to play in a hell of a world. That is yeah. that is absolutely for sure. So you turn in your work on the game. When did you actually see, uh, and I'm sure you saw concept art and you might have seen some renderings 
after you had actually finished writing aspects of the story. But when did you actually see some completed elements from the game itself, and, and how did it strike you? I actually saw a lot of the concept stuff while I was working on it, because like I said, they already had a lot of stuff done. Right, assets so and kind of things changing like that. the story without changing the settings. Mm-hmm. But I, um, yeah, actually, I didn't. I, I didn't see the final thing until you know all of you did. So sure. And did you uh, get a chance to play it? Yeah, I've played it. I've um, I have not completed it. I'll say I have had to go on like um, YouTube to watch some of the cutscenes and sure. stuff because people put their gameplay up there and stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, when I play games, it's more. I like to be the uh, the sneaky sniper and things like that. Doing <laughs> brawling is, is not my forte in video games. Okay, so. that's interesting. So, so you you are a little bit of a gamer then? Yeah. Okay. What I, kind of games do you like? I'm more into open world sandbox stuff like Fallout and Skyrim. Okay. Some Dragon Age and some other stuff, but yeah, mostly mostly those. I like to just I like the exploring part sure. of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can't quite imagine what an undertaking would be for creating uh, so, so many different branching paths on a story for a game like that. My my wife is playing uh, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild right now, and she's probably put about 55 hours into it thus far. I think that's where the counter was, and she's maybe halfway through the game. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's, it's it's absolutely intense, those kinds of games. Okay, so that's pretty interesting, though. So you... When you, as as a gamer, then when you heard that it was going to be a brawler, how did that strike you? How did it strike me? Um, I was like, well, I'd like to play it, and it'd be cool to play as a uh, as Night Owl or Rorschach and see their different styles. And I think they got their different styles down pretty well. It wasn't something I was thinking about while I was writing. It was like you know, because it's just about the story and yeah. uh, how the gameplay goes is the gameplay. I don't have much control over that. Sure. Yeah. So well, this will be fun. Let me go. I'm sure I'll try it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Because. I mean, one of the things that I find eminently fascinating about Watchmen The End Is Nigh overall is that the story has to be pushed forward almost entirely by yours and Len Wein's efforts, you know, because the the nature of the genre that it's a part of doesn't really lend itself very well to progressing plot outside of maybe a couple of offhanded dialogue notes. So I remember thinking... At the time that the game was announced, it's kind of a weird uh, genre for a Watchmen game. I mean, it makes sense in in regards to being comic book heroes, but such a layered and such a dense and such a celebrated thick work of story uh, fitting into a a brawler genre seemed sort of like a mismatch. But (laughs) yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously there is a there's a fair amount of brawling. In Watchmen itself. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll admit, it, I mean, maybe it takes you out a little bit because you have to do so much of it. You know, it's like, you, know, you kind of want to get to the story. I mean, it would be awesome to do something like, um, you know, Half-Life, where the uh, the stuff is going all around you and you're getting the, the story. But I, th- I think a lot of it was, you know, time constraints and things like that. Let's, you know, let's have the cutscenes and do it in like that motion comics Look, have you ever seen? Have you seen those? Oh yeah, I, I, I yeah. have the uh, the ultimate edition on Blu-ray, and they came with all the motion comics. Right, right. So um, yeah, I guess that was just the idea. Let's let's tell a story with the cutscenes, and um, mm-hmm. um, I actually don't know who did the dialogue in game, the little quips that they're saying back and forth as they're beating people up. 
So I'm really not sure who did that. I don't know if that was Lynn. I don't know if it was um, somebody just from the developer. It's a Danish company, I believe. Yeah, Deadline uh, Games. Mm-hmm. That, that's, yeah. That, that's interesting. Um, I, I guess I would have thought that it would have been either either you or Len Wein, but also, too, the fact that they were able to get the principal performers. I mean, they <laughs> might have ad-libbed that stuff for all I know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I could ask, but I yeah. Yeah, no. has, hasn't come up yet. So. <laughs> no, that's that's interesting. I mean, because that is one of the things that sort of keeps you within the experience. I mean, there's not a whole lot of uh, of quips while you're actually doing the brawling, but it, it's a it's a nice little touch. That's for <laughs> sure. So, I, I in, invariably I have to get to. Um, when the game was actually released, how cognizant were you of the game's critical reception? At the time, not not very. I think I maybe I've looked, you know, maybe a year later or something, because when things shake out, to maybe look on the Wikipedia page or something like that, see mm-hmm. how people like it. But um, at the time, I wasn't it wasn't something I was focused on. So sure, yeah. I, um, I mean, there were some outlets who were relatively kind to it, and there were others who were, at least in my estimation, maybe a little too harsh on it overall. I mean, like I kind of touched on before, I'm kind of amazed at uh, at the writing's ability to create a story that was, I guess, worthy of the setting and worthy of the characters, and yeah, I mean, if I if I had all my druthers, would the whole game be similarly layered? Sure, but considering what it is, I mean, that's probably from from an A to B, punch everything until you get to the next objective game. The story is a definite highlight, especially for for me as a fan of the book. So it's it's a thrill to be able to talk to to you because you had a, a very big part of that and it seems like obviously you brought a level of of passion to it when you became sort of familiar with the way that the game was received did how, how did that make you feel was it were you sort of okay with it it was a job that you did or uh, or did did it strike you another way i was okay with it cuz and this has been true on a lot of Zack's movies it's you know people seem to love it or, or hate it <laughs> so yeah so I don't feel bad. It's like I, you know, the game is a very small part of that whole thing, and you know, I know I did m- my part, and um, so you know, people are going to have their own opinion. I, I don't. I, I mean, I don't feel bad about that I did something wrong. It's like, oh, I should have done that, and people would have loved it. No. So I'm, I'm proud of what I did. So I'm fine. Yeah, and I think you should be. I mean, any any shortcomings with the actual gameplay experience go to the developer, but. Also, too, as weird as it might sound, and, you know, we kind of touched on this with the idea of condensing a work like Watchmen into a brawler game, Mm -hmm. the game itself doesn't actually try to be anything more than it is. And I think that that, you should sort of temper expectations with that. I mean, if it was trying to present itself as this complex piece of of branching narrative uh, grandiosity, then it might be one thing, but... I mean, it's pretty blatant with the idea that you are Night Owl or you're Rorschach and you are kicking the living crap out of anything that gets in your way. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you get some, some pretty cool cutscenes. I mean, the cutscenes by themselves are so evocative 
of Dave Gibbons' artwork and the motion comics, like you said, of course. So I don't know how, as a Watchmen fan, you can at least be intrigued by uh, by some of the ideas and the story that's presented, especially as as sort of an addendum to what we already understand from the book. And you said you haven't really absorbed the before Watchmen stuff. Is no. there is there interest on your part to take a look at that stuff? There is. I think I read one of the Minutemen ones, like the first one or something like that. Mm. And it's just like I'm more of a, a casual comic book reader, like from when I was a kid and stuff like that. So sure. going you know, every week and getting the new comics and stuff has never been, you know, I mean, they have been trade paperbacks now. So at some point I might go through and, and see what they did. Mm-hmm. But I, um, I haven't up till now. Well, and uh, DC is taking, it seems a little bit more of an active interest in Watchmen and actually reshaping their superhero stories. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but you might. Yeah. I something with um, Dr. Manhattan having a hand in things. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. So, it sounds like a, a a fair amount of your work with these characters specifically has been tied to uh, the the pretty extensive work that Zack Snyder has had now with um, with comics based media overall. Uh, it, did I see that right? That you were also the author of a of an art of the film book for Batman v Superman? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And is is that something that is is Snyder pretty much able to say I want you to work on the book, or do you have to go through some other channels and b- before you actually get there? He can pretty much say I'm not sure what they're doing for Justice League. Just let you know. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, it's not a problem. I've worked with the same publisher, um, Titan, for a number of books now, so it's you know they know me, so it's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Bring me on, yeah. And what was your experience like in actually creating the Dawn of Justice book? Because you know, I'm sure you, you're well aware that that movie is a little bit polarizing when it comes oh. to, to the to the fans' perspective. Yeah, um, it was you know pretty much like the other ones. There was a lot of um, interviews to do, and then I had a lot of questions and stuff for Zach and um, and for some other people involved, video, you know, the visual effects and. Mm-hmm. like that so it was you know pretty much the same as doing the other ones sure i would have liked to have a little i guess a little more concept art and things like that i think people complained a little bit about that but um i don't do a lot of the selection of the uh of the artwork mm-hmm. so um that's you know that's just the way it is and just trying to get the uh the, the the narrative out there mm-hmm. and get across what we're what mm-hmm. we're talking about. So so you kind of have to write around the uh, the artwork selections. Is that kind of how it works? Well, I usually write first, and then they might have like placeholder things or just nothing. And I've I've written out the the narrative the the text, mm-hmm. and then they all start laying up, and they'll be putting stuff in there. And then I get you know like the galleys back, and I'll go through and do the captions of what what we're looking at. Mm-hmm. I don't have a lot of input on what they're, what they're showing. I, one thing I did make sure they had in that was, um, Patrick Totopoulos, the, um, the production designer mm-hmm. had, I wanted to make sure his, his initial sketch he did on a napkin for the, um, the Batmobile was on there. Cause that was he was something he was proud of. It, it basically made it all the way through from a uh, napkin sketch all the way through production. So, um, <laughs> the basic shape of it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so they got that in there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fun being able to 
to talk to people um, about their creative process and stuff like that. Yeah, sure. So, and how yeah. did that movie strike you? I liked it. It was, you know, it's very dense. Um, there's a lot of things going on. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the stuff I I don't understand the hate for. I really like the different take on Lex Luthor. I was like a little bit like Jesse Eisenberg is Lex Luthor, but once you know, once I saw what he was doing. And I'd read the script before, so maybe that prepped me for the way he was going to act. Uh-huh. Um, and then seeing him, I really liked it. So Yeah, different strokes always, for different folks, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, people have their idea of how it, it should all go down. And, you know, sometimes, you know, it doesn't doesn't work out that way, and so they get mad. But Yeah, uh, um, fans tend to have that kind of attitude towards a lot of things. I mean... Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously I'm a fan, but I try to, I guess I always try to take a little bit more of a moderate approach to, uh, to the, to the way that I perceive the works in question. You know, with, with Watchmen, it's a little bit different just because for so long there was one piece of source material. And right. when you work on characters that are the single biggest icons in superhero fiction, as uh, as a construct, I guess. Uh, then you deal with 75 years of source material, so there are 75 years worth of ideas that fans have about what makes a good adaptation and what doesn't. So I would right. imagine you know you kind of get thrown into into the deep end when you go from a from a pretty narrowly defined work like Watchmen to a very broadly defined set of characters like Batman and Superman. Right. I mean, and they have changed so much over the years, and there's been a lot of wacky things in the comic books, too, that, you know, if you tried to put them on screen, people would people would run laughing from the theater. But sure. <laughs> so at the end of the day, you have to come up with your own idea. You know, Christopher Nolan did it. You know, Tim Burton did it. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, Batman's different in every one of those iterations. And, um, you know, so... This might be a loaded question, and no. feel free to uh, <laughs> to look past it if you want to. Okay. But if there was an aspect that you feel about Zack Snyder that has not been properly captured, what what would you like to communicate to people about Zack Snyder who may not have an accurate picture of him from your perspective? Oh, that he has a lot of passion for the, um, the projects that he's on. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's, he's way smarter, I think, than maybe people per, um, portray him sometimes. Okay. Um, I, you know, would just like to get that. And, and, you know, he's constrained a lot by, you know, what is the, what is a runtime of a movie? You know, <laughs> you know? Sure. and, um, and I think it usually happens when you get a director's cut, Afterwards, they get some kind of ultimate cut or director's cut or something like that, and just say, "Hey, that was really good." And it was like sometimes he just has so much stuff he wants to tell that maybe the constraint of of you know two hours, two out half hours or something is just not enough. Sure. And how you get around that, I don't know. But <laughs> working miniseries maybe or something. But um, <laughs> he and he does care. He's not trying. You know, oh my God, he destroyed Doctor Manhattan by changing the the end of Watchmen or something like that. And it's like. No, he really cares about all that stuff. And he, I really cares about Batman. I can tell you that, and as well as Superman. Mm-hmm. But uh, Batman is definitely his favorite uh, comic book character. I'm pretty sure. Sure. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think you can sort of see that. I mean, I guess I've always sort of had the perspective on him 
that he you, you cannot deny that he has always tried to push forward more the, I guess the term is sophisticated ideas and the stories that he's telling with the characters. I, I give him so much credit for for sticking to his guns to tell a story that is not typical. I mean, um I think Man of Steel is a good example of that. Uh-huh. Uh for for a yeah. long time we had an idea of what a Superman movie was and whether people ended up liking it or not I have a, a feeling that Man of Steel is the movie that he envisioned it to be, and it's impossible for anyone, I think, not to give him credit for that. Or it's impractical not to give him credit for that. It's not really fair to 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 not ascribe him that kind of credit. I've always been a, a really big fan of Superman, and the only thing that kind of strikes me, I guess, and it's impossible to definitively say at this point, since his story is not complete yet. And, of course, as a reasonable person, I need to reserve judgment for his story when it's actually complete, conceivably after Justice League comes out, but maybe a little bit later. That his perspective on Superman was a little darker than I would prefer. Uh, I'm, I'm a sucker for the beacon of aspirational heroism that, that Superman mm-hmm. is, and I think that's why Captain America has become so popular at the movies, is because he doesn't think the way that other superhero characters do, and people right. have gravitated towards that. But, also, Snyder's acumen for visual storytelling is virtually unmatched. And we were able to see these characters in Man of Steel and in Dawn of Justice, do things that they have not done anywhere outside of comics before. And uh, and I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. Uh, I, I know fans who, who have tried to accuse him of taking the beating heart out of some characters, and I, just, I, I think that that's a little hyperbolic for my taste, but I'm definitely going to be interested to see where things go next, as, it, as I'm sure you will be. Especially mm-hmm. as someone who's who's so intimately familiar with his work, but when it comes to his work on Watchmen, I mean, I it's it's gratifying to hear that he was relatively involved with the way that the game was constructed, at least with the way that the story of the game was constructed, yeah. because that to me is the is the most truthful aspect of the experience as a whole and makes the game worth playing. So now that we are eight years, gosh, has it been eight years? We're eight years removed from from the Watchmen film and from the video game. How does that era strike you as someone who who contributed to it uh, with with a degree of importance? But now that you have you know a wider body of work to look back upon, obviously. What value do you take from the experiences of working with Watchmen? Well, it was, um, no, it was a very fun, exciting time. I guess I regret a little bit that I haven't been able to, I don't know, capitalize on that a bit more. I uh-huh. did the, uh, the Legend of the Guardians, the Owls of Gavul, um, video game. Oh, right. So that was fun. That was, it was a lot more work on that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, more people play. It's really, actually a really fun game to play too. It's, um, basically based off like Rogue Squadron mm-hmm. from way back in the day. Sure. And oh so you're you know, you're basically a an owl, but you're a, a fighter plane. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's actually pretty fun. But um so I'd like to do more of that. I've been more concentrated on um screenwriting 
and um, a film that I co-wrote is now coming out at the Tribeca Film Festival Oh, at the end of this month. It's called Devil's Gate, so everybody go out and look for it. Excellent. Um, my partner in that is, um, and the guy who directed it, his name is Clay Staub. He actually went to school with Zach, and he's done a lot of second unit stuff on Zach's movies, including uh, Justice League. Okay, great. Yeah, so, um, but this is a very different sort of thing. No superheroes involved. It's very, it's kind of a dark thing that happens out on the prairie. Sure. So, um, a more intimate then. Yeah. So, um, going back to Watchmen and the books and the, in the, and the video games. So it's always, I'm, you know, proud to have that up on my shelf to be saying, here I am part of it. I mean, it, I mean, the coolest, uh, I guess thing was that there was a, um, we had a little party at Comic-Con back that year when they did the first uh, trailer. No, this was actually later. Sorry. This was um, when they did the um, – when Sucker Punch was coming out, and they did the trailer for Sucker Punch at Comic-Con. Mm-hmm. And um, they had, like, a little reception party for it. And I'm standing there with Dave Gibbons and, and Frank Miller. <laughs> oh, wow. And, and also um, Clay Enos, who's a um, he's a set photographer. Right, yeah. A lot of his movies. And he did the, the Washburn portraits. And, and then, you know, I introduced myself to Dave Gibbons and say, oh, I wrote the, you know, the art of the film and, and stuff for Watchmen. And he says, oh, too bad Alan Moore's not here. Then we'd have all the, the, <laughs> the authors of Watchmen here. And it's like <laughs> having Dave Gibbons say that is pretty crazy. So, oh, yeah. um, so it was pretty cool. But, um, but yeah, I'd like to do more of that, I guess I would say. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of surprised that, uh, it, it doesn't really sound like you've entertained the idea of doing comics writing. I have, but it's still, it's a very hard field to get into. More, I've, I've thought more along times I've, of things that I have, like, um, screenplays that I've written that sure. I'd like to put in a comic, in a graphic novel format or something like that. But get, you know, I don't draw. So, right. Uh, sure. Finding people who are, who are passionate about the same project, who will want to draw all those panels and everything like that, that can be difficult. And meanwhile, I've been doing other stuff. So, is there something that interests me? Sure. But um, mm-hmm. but it just hasn't hasn't come about yet. Well, hey, you never know. I bet uh, I bet Dark Horse or IDW or Image or one of the other smaller press companies might. Uh, I mean, they always seem like they're starved for interesting ideas. And uh, sounds yeah. like you have a few kicking around. They're back there. They're back there. Wrapping around in my brain. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, just keep them alive. Thanks. <laughs> well, Mr. Raperlo, thank you so much for taking the time to to talk with us. It's it's been very educational. It's been fun talking with you. And yep. uh and and best of luck on your future projects. Please feel free to check in on uh on on those things coming to fruition. But where can people find you if they wanted to follow your work more directly? Probably Twitter is the best place. Mm-hmm. It's just Peter Raperlo at Twitter. Okay. Uh, so it's, it's pretty easy to find. And you uh, also have a Goodreads page and an Amazon author page and stuff I like do. that. I do. Thank you for finding those. Hey, um, not, a, not a problem. I, I'm, I'm good at looking around. Yeah, and you probably have find some political rants from me on there, too, on Twitter. But, yeah, I try to keep up with what's going on with projects. So that's a good place to look. Excellent. All right, well, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it, and uh, and we'll take it from here. Great. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. Rorschach's Journal, August 3rd, 1977. The nation burns while the politicians fiddle. They want us to pack up and go home. Pretend we haven't seen the world's black underbelly. But once a man is seen, he can never pretend it doesn't exist. 
no matter who orders him to look the other way. That's going to do it for issue number 9 of Comics on Consoles. Again, a special thanks to Peter Aperlo for joining me in the discussion portion. We really appreciated him taking the time. And I hope that you've enjoyed the show, that this issue was worth the rather extreme wait, and that you'll join us next time as we explore another comics-based video game. As this issue is coming out in spring of 2017, we're on the cusp of a new summer filled with comics-based releases, and we'll be getting those movies lasting us through the end of the year. This got me thinking about the current reigning box office champions in comic book cinema, namely the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Though it seems like an eternity ago, I'm sure that there are fans who remember being excited by the idea of new games to accompany the early experiences from Marvel Studios, especially because now, it seems like Marvel has kind of checked out of the console game business. While recent indications see them turning that attitude around, what led them to recuse themselves from making AAA games for most of the last six years? To begin to answer that question, we have to go to a game that had a significant amount of promise that, for whatever reason, seemed to have gone awry in spectacular enough fashion that it almost seems to have been orchestrated by the subject character himself. Be sure to join us for Comics on Consoles issue number 10 as we suit up to take on the game mongers at Sega for the first MCU-based video game, Iron Man. Developed by Secret Level and published by Sega in May of 2008 for Microsoft's Xbox 360, Sony's PlayStation 3, and PC. In the meantime, you can follow Comics on Consoles on Facebook and Twitter, check out our website, comicsonconsoles.com, and be sure to subscribe to the show via your favorite podcasting app of choice. Comics on Consoles is a member of the Pod Tyrant Podcast Network, as well as the Batman Podcast Network. Until next time, keep saving the world, gamers and comics fans. After all, now more than ever, the world needs people who continue to believe in heroes. So, why not play one in a video game? Thanks for listening and for sticking with us. Take care, and we will talk with you again soon. This show is part of the Pod Tyrant Network. For more podcasts, interviews, and content, visit PodTyrant.com.